It's good to be here this morning studying God's Word together. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses <clears throat> verses 18 through 20. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to tell you a story. You know, we, we like to talk to our kids about um, discernment. Uh, as, as parents, I know, and, and I'm sure school teachers and many other roles, we, we're often talking to people about discernment. And, and so we'll tell our kids things like, you know, you, you need to be careful not to, to talk to strangers, right? Which causes some of my kids sometimes not to talk to some of you, I'm afraid. But, uh, you know, we're trying to get that one in there. Um, or not to take candy from guys in vans, you know, uh, that's kind of an important one. Although if you grew up in the country, it's kind of an odd one too, right? Like you can just imagine being out at the king's house and a guy pulling up with a van with candy. It'd be kind of unusual. But, but anyway, I mean, in general, these are, these are truths that we, uh, we want to talk to our kids about, about discernment and who we trust and who we allow to, uh, speak into our lives or to, uh, be a part of our lives. And so I, I tell you that because I want to tell you a story about a time when I didn't really use some good discernment. And so when I was in high school and, uh, college, I wore a flat top. I always liked flat tops. I'm mostly just too lazy to go get a flat top cut today, or I'd probably still wear one. But I was going on a mission trip. I needed a haircut. This was just after college. I was working with BCM, and so Carrie and I had been married, and uh, decided I needed a haircut. And we were in Oklahoma City, and you know how it is. <clears throat> you go to a barber you don't know, and, and you just never know what you're going to get. But I thought a flat top you can't really go wrong with. It's flat. Right. And so we went to one of these kind of chain haircut places, you know, get your haircut for $10 or whatever and uh, go in there. And I told this lady, I said, I, I need a, a flat top. Well, I've never done one of those before, but I could do that. OK, well, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to let you try. And then she goes on to say, well, see, I've got this uh, this little tool here that if I just use it, it'll it'll help me cut your hair flat. And I thought, oh no, this is not going to work right. Because, I mean, that would work if you had a square head, right? But most of us have somewhat round heads. And if you know anything about a flat top, they end up, you know, longer at the front and they're shorter at the back because your head crowns, or most of us have kind of a crowning head. Yeah, and it's short on the sides. Well, she gets, basically, it's like a number 10 deal to put on the end of some clippers, you know, and, and she's like, look, this is, we just put this on here and it's going to hold it out to the right length. And instead of standing up out of the chair at that moment and saying, you know, I think I'm going to go someplace else. I just decided it's okay. Maybe, maybe she knows something I don't should have been paying attention to the red flags. Um, and so I walked out of there and my hair was just gone because <laughs> Because she tried to do that, well, you know what that's going to do, right? It's the same length all the way around, which if I if I gelled it and fluffed it out, it would just look weird. I'd look like Bob Ross, straight hair. And, uh, and so I said, this is not the haircut I want, and I'm going on a mission trip, and I really don't have to deal with this. And so she just cut it all off at like a number one, and uh, I wore a burr that, that year. Um, I just say that to say, you know, there was that, that gut feeling inside me that said... I ought not trust this lady because just because she's got a pair of scissors doesn't mean she's a barber, right? She, she might be a stylist or, or, or I don't know if you want to make some kind of distinction there, but what she did not know how to do was to cut a flat top. 
there's less and less people I'm finding that do know how to do that. Um, but anyway, uh, that, that was the issue. And so there I just ignored my better judgment and, and went along and said, okay, well, we'll just get a haircut and call it good. <clears throat> and I, I reaped the consequences of that. And that's just a silly haircut story, right? But it's far more serious when we do not listen to our conscience. We don't listen to that, that little voice inside of us that says, wait a minute, this person doesn't know what they're doing when it comes to the Word of God. Far more serious. And so this morning, we want to look at what's going on here in uh, the book of 1 Timothy as this is specifically what Paul's addressing. And so I'm going to read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 18 through 20. And if you would stand, if you're able, uh, in honor of God and the reading of His Word. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings that are there. We thank you for the instructions that are there. Lord, we thank you for revealing our sin to us through your word. God, you are so good because you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And it's by your word that we know who you are. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would be cautious as to how we intake your word and who we allow to speak into our lives. Father, that we would not fall into uh, teaching that is contrary to your word, that is contrary to who you are, that misrepresents you, maligns you, slanders you, Father. But God, may we hear your word preached and proclaimed truthfully and accurately. And Lord, may we, may we guard that carefully in the lives of those that we have oversight of. And so, Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply this to our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. And so here in, in the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, I know we've kind of hit the last part of 1 Timothy chapter 1 several times, but we just wanted to, to touch one more time on this last little section here because it's, a, it's an important one. Um, and, and what we have here is just wise counsel from Paul to Timothy, right? Uh, that's kind of what we're looking at here. He's instructing Timothy on how to deal with falsehood in the flock. And so in many ways, this is not, it's not really a new teaching to Timothy so much as it is a, a, a reminder uh, of something that Timothy should know. And so Paul's going to tell him, he's going to remind him that, that Timothy is commissioned to fight the good fight. He's going to remind him of the consequences of false teaching, and he's going to remind him that combating false teaching requires action in the flock. And so we're going to look at these three reminders here as we look at this passage this morning. And so we're just going to start off here looking at chapter uh, 1, verse 18. And I want to read 18 in the first part of 19 again, where it says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
And so as we look at this passage, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is what charge is Timothy talking about? When he says, uh, uh, this charge I entrust to you, well, what is it, what's he on about? Where, where does this come from? Is he talking about something prior to this, something that, that's latter than this? And, and I would just say, what, what we see there is something that points directly back to something Michael preached about several weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And so if we look back at, at verse 3 here, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons to what? That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so he's writing to Timothy in chapter 1 saying, Listen, Timothy, I, I'm, I'm, I want you to be there in Ephesus so that you can tell these people, that you can encourage these people not to teach different doctrine. And then he gets into a discussion uh, about some of maybe what they've been teaching or at least an allusion to it there as he talks about the law, uh, latter in the kind of the middle part of chapter 1. And then, then he concludes that with a discussion about his own life, right? And he kind of gives a brief testimony about his life and who he was prior to knowing Christ. And then he comes back to that, that commission, that, that uh, charge. He says, now, now Timothy, I, I got sidetracked for a minute, but let's come back to that. I'm giving you this charge, Timothy, that people ought not teach different doctrine. You go and tell the people in Ephesus that. You, you make sure they hear that. I'm giving you this charge, and I'm entrusting it to you to take care of it. And so Timothy has had a, a responsibility placed on himself, right? This is, this is a command from Paul. Really, it's a command from the Lord that Timothy protect right doctrine in the church, that he command people not to teach doctrine contrary and false. And so this is, this is what he's dealing with, and, and he's not just making some suggestion, like if you get a chance, Timothy, address this issue. You know, when it comes up in Sunday school, you know, just kind of side skirt it and don't make a big deal out of it. No, he says, Timothy, you need to address this. You need to take care of it. You're there to protect the flock. In fact, you're there to fight for the flock, and you fight for them. One of the ways in which you do it is protecting them from falsehood. And the falsehood doesn't always come from without the church. Sometimes it comes from within. And so as we think about what it's like to, to encourage our kids not to talk to strangers, not to take candy, or not to get a haircut from somebody that apparently doesn't know what they're doing, um, in the same way, we ought to look here and say, you know, it's important who we listen to. Who proclaims the truth and how they do it? Do they proclaim the truth according to God's Word as revealed in Scripture? Or are they going in another direction? Are they using it contrary to the way that God's Word is intended? And so uh, we look at this and we say God's entrusted us just as much as Timothy with protecting the, the flock, right? And so that, that might be your, your family, that might be uh, your Sunday school group, your small group, your, you know, whatever it might be, or, or in, you know, Jeremy and Michael and I's case, maybe it's, maybe it's the flock, the church that meets here in the local body. Uh, here at First Baptist. But we've all been entrusted in protecting that. We, we don't get the, the, the past to say, you know what, I don't really know a lot about God's Word, and so I'm just going to let somebody else tell me what it says. We don't get that option. 
We're, we're called as believers to be in God's Word, to know God's Word, and, and to find truth here, and then judge those who teach outside and, and what they teach according to this, right? Which means we need to be careful about who we put on the TV, who we listen to on the radio, who we allow here in the pulpit. And so Timothy is, is being reminded of these things from Paul because Paul says, I entrusted you with this charge, Timothy. It's not, it's not a request, uh, but I'm not going to be there. I'm not able to be there. Brother, you've got to take care of it. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to take care of it in the, in the, the realms in which we, uh, we have oversight. And so, as we're thinking about this, and, and one of the things that I don't want to trip you up too much in this passage in 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, if you're like me, you kind of like to, to look at these things and, and you get curious. What prophecies is he talking about, right? I mean, that was my first, I was looking at this, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what those prophecies are. You know, the answer to that is, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, right? But that's not really the point. I mean, the point is, is, is Paul's giving him a reference to go back to and, and saying, you know those, those prophecies that were made about you, Timothy? Those are going to help you in fighting the good fight, in warring in, in good, with the good warfare. And so we can speculate about some of those, and, and that's all we can really do. But I would just make the observation that in Acts chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 1, uh, we read this. This is not concerning Timothy, but I think it might give us some, some light on uh, this idea. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So obviously this is, this is talking about Barnabas and Saul. Uh, and yet I think there's something for us to, to see here is, uh, oftentimes in the New Testament specifically, we see this, this prophetic word about uh, the, the commission of pastors and, and ministers. And so here we see it with Saul and Barnabas. I think that's exactly what is being referenced when it comes to Timothy. Remember the charge. It, it's almost like in a modern-day church where we might have an ordination service and you have a pastor that stands up and they preach the charge to, to Matt or to Derek or to whoever it might be. Uh, it, it's almost a, along those kind of lines that there was prophetic words spoken over Timothy that this is what he was called to do. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, I, I think we see a little more solid confirmation of that uh, when it says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. I think those two verses kind of give us some insight there into what's going on. So not to get too hung up on what these prophecies might have said or meant. I think the bigger picture here is the, the, the call of God on the life of Timothy. And, and Paul's pointing him back to that call saying, brother, you have been called by God and that's going to be helpful to you when you go and fight the good fight. Remember that. Hold fast to that. You've been given a charge and not just a charge from Paul, but a charge from God. And so he calls him to that and he goes on, he calls him to, to wage the good warfare, which really could just be translated fight the good fight, right? And we've, we've heard that language of fight the good fight in many places in uh, the Bible and, and specifically in First and Second Timothy. And so First Timothy 6, verse 12, 
talks about fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Or in 2 Timothy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, we see, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so Paul says, I've done it. Timothy, you do it as well. Fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. There's something that God's called us to, and it's not simply kind of a, uh, a docile lifestyle that, that says, I just kind of set and receive and go on about my life. No, God's called us into a, a warfare, a spiritual warfare that we fight. And we fight that with gifts and tools given to us by God. And so each and every one of us, uh, most definitely Timothy, but beyond Timothy, that is true of us, that God's called you to fight the good fight. He's entrusted each and every one of us with somebody that we have influence in their lives. And so when we, when we desire to be obedient to the Lord and help them and instruct them and teach them, we do so with the weapons that the Lord has given us. We don't do it on our own. And we do what He's called us to. And so we wage the, the good warfare. We fight the good fight. And how do you do that? Well, you, one of the ways you're doing that is by holding faith and a good conscience there in verse 19. And so, again, this is something we see a lot in Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, the connection of these two, the, the, the good faith or the uh, holding to this, this faith and a good conscience, uh, without reading them, just a couple of places that you might jot down. 1 Timothy 1.5, remember Mike's done a couple of sermons on that verse, important verse, um, where it talks about having faith and good conscience right there together, a pure heart, uh, doing these, these things out of love. And in 1 Timothy 1.19, the passage we're looking at here, it talks about it. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, he goes back to this idea again of, of the faith and good conscience or clear conscience. Which brings me to a, a point that I just want to talk about a minute. Is what does it mean to have a good conscience? I mean, what is a conscience? I mean, it's kind of a... We, we kind of know what that is, right? But then we try to describe it to somebody or define it, and it becomes a lot more elusive. Um, and so I want to talk about that just for a minute. Um, one, of the, one of the definitions I found for it, and I really like this, it's probably a little too technical, but I just let me read it to you, and then we'll, we'll uh, kind of walk through it a little bit. Uh, this comes from George Knight. It says, A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. Now, there's more to it than that, but let me read that part again. A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. To reject or repudiate a good conscience is to be willfully and self-consciously disobedient to God's requirements because a good conscience bespeaks a self-conscious obedience. Okay, so that's a, that's a mouthful, mouthful and a lot to talk about there, but, but do you hear what he's saying there? Ultimately, the, the, the conscience is uh, a way in which one's moral self-evaluation registers that he's obedient to God. And I think that's important because sometimes, if we're not careful, we tend to think of our conscience as what tells us what is right, right and wrong. And that's not entirely accurate. Uh, I, I think the better way to look at it is the conscience is a tool that God uses to keep you in understanding what is right and wrong. But the actual understanding of what is right and wrong comes from the Word of God. And so there's a there's an objective content 
that the conscience is using to guide us by. And this is why sometimes in our world today, we'll have people that can do things contrary to the Word of God and, and not feel guilty about it, if you will. Well, the reason is, is their conscience is not being informed by the one true source. Thank you. <laughs> one true source of truth. It's coming from the Word of God, right? And so our conscience is good in as much as it finds its objective right and wrong in the Word of God. And when that's the case, we're going to be safe in, in having a good conscience. But if our conscience is not informed by the Word of God, but rather by some other source, then there's no telling where we might end up. And so it, it is a, a tool that God uses for us um, a person's conscience can be bad in that it gauges its gauge of right and wrong is not found in God's truth but some other source. And so maybe to make that an easier thing to understand, Puritans are incredibly understandable. I don't know if you've ever read much Puritans. They're kind of scary because they write really long books, but they're they're incredibly what's the word I'm looking for? Devotional? I mean, just just grab you right where you're at and make, oh, that makes so much sense. And I love that about the, the Puritans. And so one, I, and I don't know much about him, but his name's John Trapp. He was an Anglican pastor in the 17th century. He says this about the conscience. He said, a good conscience is, as it were, a chest to which the doctrine of faith is to be kept safe in. And that doctrine of faith will quickly be lost if the chest is broken. For God will give over to errors and heresies those who cast away conscience of walking after God's Word. And so not to say that the conscience is something that protects the faith so much as something that, that contains it. And he's like, so if, if we willingly break the, the chest, the conscience, we go against it, well, then the contents are going to spill out. And that's what he's getting at. And so if, if we're to keep the faith and have this good faith and good conscience, then it requires us not to break the container, not to break the, the box, not to break our conscience or go against it, contrary to it. And yet what, what happens here and what Paul is talking about specifically is someone who's done ex exactly that, right? So, Timothy, brother, I've entrusted this charge to you and, and you need to, you need to be obedient to this. You need to do that. Timothy, my, my child, um, you, you do that by holding on to uh, uh, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. But by rejecting these, if we go on in verse 19, this, by rejecting this, speaking of the good conscience, but by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And so as he reminds Timothy of the, uh, <clears throat> the commission to fight, he then quickly moves to a second thing, talking about the consequences of false teaching. And so, how do people fall into this false teaching? How do they get to this point where they're at? Well, he's going to give them a couple of examples in Hymenaeus and Alexander. And exactly what that looks like is somebody who has rejected their good conscience, who's acted in opposition to it. So next, Paul reminds Timothy of the consequences of that false teaching and how one arrives at this position to accept false teaching. Uh, he gives them these two ex examples. Uh, and in fact, we don't know for sure. Again, so much of, of history from 2,000 years ago is, is uh, uh, hard to, to, to give the detail to. 
but, but many commentators actually believe that Hymenaeus and Alexander may have been elders within the church. We, we don't know that. There's, there's no way for us to necessarily confirm that. Uh, but they were leaders in the church of some sort, form, some sense, right? There are people that have influence in the church and are teaching things contrary to the Word of God, and so they have to be addressed. And so as we, we look here, it just makes us think, well, if somebody that's an elder or somebody who's a deacon or somebody who's a Sunday school teacher at church could fall into this, how does that happen? How do you, how do you fall into that? How does somebody like Hymenaeus and Alexander fall into that? How, how do they get led into that error? And how do they let themselves lead others into error? Well, they, they do it by rejecting a good conscience. You know, it's, it's not that different from me going to get my hair cut, Right? I mean, against my better judgment, I let somebody cut my hair who thought that they had a little tool that all they had to do was use the little tool and, and voila, a flat top would come out. I know better than that. I've got my hair cut several times and I've seen how much effort a barber has to put into holding the, the deal level on your head while he, he cuts across there and he cuts the sides up and he trims around the ears and all that. I know that it, you don't have some little clipper you just put on there. and it, But I, I willingly went against what I knew better, and reaped the consequence, which was a bad haircut. But when it comes to right understanding of God's Word and relationship with God, we can't make that mistake. It's not a simple haircut that gets messed up. It makes shipwreck of your faith. That's the consequence of false teaching. When you go against your good conscience, when you know, go against that which you know better because your conscience has been informed by the Word of God, and you say, well, I know that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's Matt, and he just said that, and, and he's probably right. No. No, don't do that. Because th- this is the final authority in God's Word. And so if Matt's wrong, don't listen to Matt. Turn Matt off the TV, off the radio. Don't let him stand in the pulpit right here. It's just too dangerous a thing. It makes shipwreck of faith. And so Hymenaeus and Alexander, they rejected that very thing. They rejected their good conscience. And in so doing, it made shipwreck of their faith. And as he uses that wording, you know, the, the, the word for shipwreck is only used twice in the Bible. And I bet you know where the other use is when it talks about Paul being shipwrecked, right? How many times? Do you remember? Three. At least at that point in his life. Uh, hopefully no more than that. But when he wrote... Uh, the, the letter to the church of Corinth in, in chapter, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He'd been shipwrecked three times at that point. So we, we understand 1 and 2 Timothy to be written toward the end of Paul's ministry. He knows what a shipwreck looks like. He knows the, the horror of being stuck in the boat for, for seemingly weeks with no, with no respite from, from the, the waves and the storm. He knows what it's like to hit the rocks. He knows what it's like to be in the water and the fear of drowning and all of those kind of things. He understands that all too well. So this is not like Matt trying to come up with a good metaphor uh, to, to describe something. This is like, I experienced this in my life not once, not twice, but three times. And that's really accurate to what happens when you reject your conscience. And so Paul says, let me tell you, brother that these, these men have rejected their conscience and it has made shipwreck of their faith. And so he gives this example of, of these men. He talks about Hymenaeus. And 
we don't know much about Hymenaeus, right? We know this. Uh, and if we assume that the Hymenaeus that comes up in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is the same one, which is probably a safe assumption, um, then we know a little more. So let's, let's just real quickly, I want to read 2 Timothy 2, verse 16 through 18. Excuse me. This is what we're told about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, the really unfortunate part about this little bit of information is if this is, in fact, the same Hymenaeus, then it seems that that same Hymenaeus later on in life is still teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. He's still teaching things like the resurrection has already happened and he's causing other people difficulty in their spiritual walk. But this is maybe all we know about Hymenaeus, uh, that he was teaching that the resurrection already occurred. He was misrepresenting God for his actions uh, and his actions. We're not really sure uh, much else of that, uh, but it's interesting to note here that, again, this happened, Second uh, Timothy is happening later, and so it probably indicates that his false teaching continued on after this letter to First uh, Timothy and First Timothy. Um, and then the second person he mentions is Alexander. Well, Alexander's even harder to know exactly what's going on with his life and who he was uh, because it's such a common name during the time. So we can we can make some assumptions, try to make some connections, and many people have. Uh, John Calvin connects him with the Alexander that we find in the book of Acts uh, at the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. Uh, I don't know whether I would agree with that or not. I'm just not really sure. Or we might connect him with Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy. Uh, however, the designation the coppersmith might well be mean to, to indicate that he's somebody contrary to the Alexander you might be thinking so we, we don't really know much about Alexander, but we do know this. He made shipwreck of his faith. How did he do it? By rejecting a good conscience. And so Paul gives us the example of these two men. He says, Timothy, hold your faith. Holding your faith in your good conscience. Because if you don't do those things, you're going to end up like these two. In church, the same is true for us. If we don't hold the faith, if we don't hold... Uh, the good conscience that God's given us, and we we don't hold those two things together, then we very well will end up shipwrecked like Hymenaeus and Alexander. And parents, that can be true of your children. And Sunday school teachers, that can be true of your Sunday school class. Your small group Bible study. We, we can't simply let false teaching and, and errors be propagated within the body. It's important to address them. We don't have to, we have to do it in an ugly way. We don't have to do it in a mean-spirited way. In fact, we ought to do it in a, in a courtesy in love, right? And that what he says about the charge back in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5. I mean, in 5, he's talking about we're, we're doing this in love with a pure heart. And so that ought to be what informs us. And yet we must address it. We don't simply get the by. We don't just say, well, he probably just misspoke. It's okay. And we, we don't have to make, uh, make them out to be something they're not. But we address those issues. And so as he calls uh, Timothy to, to think about these two brothers and not to repeat the, the consequences of that false teaching in his life, uh, he, he reminds him of that. He reminds him of the commission he's had. He reminds him of those consequences of, 
of false teaching. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about combating that false teaching and the church's response to it. But before I, I get to that, I just want to leave you with this one thought here. As he, he points out that these brothers have made shipwreck of their faith, uh, one commentator said, if we wish to arrive safely at the harbor, our course must be guided by a good conscience. Otherwise, there is danger of shipwreck. That is, there is danger lest faith be sunk by a bad conscience as in a whirlpool or in a stormy sea. And that's what he's fighting against. And that's what we're to fight against. And thirdly, the third reminder here about combating false teaching in the church's response, we see in verse 20 uh, of 1 Timothy chapter 1, that says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so that's pretty strong language, right? Would you want somebody to write a letter that said, Oh, yeah, uh, dear Jeremy, such and such, by the way, I handed Matt over to Satan. I wouldn't particularly want that said of me. Um, and so why why the strong language? What does that even mean? His his response here is that those who distort the gospel require a strong response, right? If you're distorting the gospel, you're distorting the truth about who God is. So it's a response that I'm sure Timothy had heard from him before. This is not something, language he's not heard, right? Uh, we see the same response from Paul in dealing with the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We talk about the immoral brother in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And what's Paul's response to that? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Pretty strong language. Just as Paul delivered the Corinthian man to Satan, so too here he hands these two men over to Satan. And so what does he mean by that? What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? I think we, we kind of read that language. We don't often contemplate it enough that delivering to, be, delivering to Satan or handing over to Satan, uh, to better understand that, we should probably look back at the text. And so this is not Paul simply giving up on these men. We may be quick to, to assume that, right? Oh, well, he handed them over to Satan. He must be done with them. I'm done with them. You know, Satan, you can have them. And we often maybe use that kind of thought when we think about this. But if we look at the text, I think we see something slightly different there. Uh, it's, it's not that he's giving up on them. Uh, he's not just acknowledging the fact that they're bad guys or children of Satan and, and then removing, removing them from the sphere of, sphere of influence in the church. That's, that's not necessarily what's happening, although some of that is. When we look here at first, Timothy 1.20 and 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, the, the one thing we see about this is, uh, just look at 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It says this, you're to deliver, deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a reason for this. Why is he doing it? We hand him over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? We're going to hand him over to Satan so that he might be saved. That's kind of unusual language. Well, think again here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that, why did he do that? Why did he hand them over? That they may learn not to blaspheme. Do you, do you see it here? The handing over to Satan is not necessarily that I give up on them, there's, there's no hope for them, I'm done with them. But rather it's I'm trusting God to save them. 
and God to do the work. And, and one of the amazing things to me here is that this speaks a lot of um, the reality that God is sovereign and in control of all things. And, and track with me here for a moment. If, if Paul says, this brother has sinned, Alexander, Hymenaeus have sinned, I hand them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Satan's not interested in teaching people not to blaspheme, right? I mean, that's, that's not like, oh man, I really hope people don't blaspheme God. In fact, he's just on the opposite side of that deal. But what that does acknowledge is the fact that Satan is not some dualistic uh, companion to go along with God the Father, but rather Satan is a created being falling under the complete sovereignty of God. And that, there's some difficult things there for sure. But one thing we can hear and see here for certain is that even in this, there's the opportunity for God to use Satan to discipline his people. And that's, that's an amazing thought. As he, he looks here and he says, we've done everything we can with these brothers. As far as we can tell, they're not believers. We're going to put them out of the church so that they're not here influencing the people in the church. But we're not doing it because we don't care about them. We're doing it exactly exactly because we do care about them and we love them and we want to see them saved. And so we're trusting God to work in their heart. And, and even if it requires us handing them over to Satan for difficult struggle and discipline, God's in control of that and God can do it. And so here he, he looks at that and he says, we're, we're turning these brothers over that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so... We think about this, um, not, not necessarily thinking about the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, but thinking here about blasphemy and what he's talking about. Um, again, we, we usually connect blasphemy with, um, uh, how, how would I, how would I say it? The, uh, cursing God, right? And that's certainly one, one use of the, the word, but, but uh, when we talk about blasphemy, we really are talking about the act of cursing, slandering, reviling God, right? Showing contempt or a lack of reverence to God. All of those kind of encompass that idea of blasphemy. And I think specifically here, and this is, this is we don't have exact detail here, but I think what, what we have going on here is speaking falsely of God, right? I think what we have going on here is slander of God. In part, because if, if what we know about Hymenaeus is accurate, he's talking about the resurrection's already happened, and so he's misrepresenting God and the way God works in the world. And, and as much as he does that, that's slander of God. And so Paul says, I, I want this brother to learn not to do that. I can't seem to get through to him. Nobody else can seem to get through to him. Let's hand him over to Satan and let God get through to him that he ought not blaspheme. And so they do. And so Paul does. And I think in Paul saying that I've handed them over, the implication is he's calling Timothy and the, the church there to do likewise. Uh, and so he says this brother has blasphemed. These brothers have blasphemed and they need to learn not to do it. And so we hand them over to Satan. And so he uses that strong, strong language uh, to, to talk about this. But I want to point one other thing out to you as he talks about blasphemy and their, their guilt of blasphemy. Do you, do you remember back in Paul's testimony that we talked about last week? How did he describe himself? I mean, look back at chapter 1, verse 13. It's talking about, though formerly I, this is Paul, was a blasphemer. 
persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that is uh, that are in Christ Jesus. And I just say that I really think this tells us something about what's going on with Paul as he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, we're going to hand them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I know, I know what it is to blaspheme. I was a blasphemer myself. But for the mercy and grace of God, I would be where they're at. And so while we hear the strong discipline from Paul here, I hope that you also hear the love of Paul for erring brothers or potentially brothers, saying, I've been in their shoes, I've been a blasphemer, and God can fix that. And it requires the work of God. And we can't do it for them, and so we've handed them over to Satan. God, teach them not to blaspheme. May they learn not to do that. And so church, when we think about this and we think about what it means to be commissioned to fight the good fight and uh, we think about the consequences of false teaching, we, we also need to think about what it means for us as a church to combat that false teaching, that we must act on it. And there are times when we must act in ways like this, whether it's thinking about Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5 or even here uh, at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, that that there are times when the church is called to put out from amongst themselves those who teach falsely, those who, for all we can tell, are unbelievers. Because we, we, can't, we don't know. And, and so we want them to be outside the influence, uh, have their fluent influence outside the church. You know, not to be here corrupting and distorting uh, what is true. And so we think about Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, all of those kind of things. It's important for us to to think about how you teach, what you teach, and and not to just assume, oh, yeah, yeah, Matt's a good old guy. We'll just let him teach a Sunday school class. Uh, you don't know. Matt may be Alexander. Maybe Hymenaeus. So maybe Philetus. A number of these, these men in the church who uh, taught falsely and led others astray. And, and notice, too, the language that's used often in connection with these guys that have gone astray. Uh, in, in chapter 1 earlier, uh, he's talking about, uh, verse 6, about these certain persons swerving, uh, by swerving from these, and these being the love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith, faith certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away from vain dis, uh, into vain discussions. And so they've wandered away, they've swerved off. We see that language again later on in Second Timothy, swerving. We see the language here of shipwreck. This is what happens. This is a result, and it's important that we protect against it. So we do well to remember these three truths today. Uh, we're called to fight the good fight. We're to be good stewards of our lives and not just expect someone else to watch out for us. We're to protect those whom God has entrusted to us, whether it's God's flock or it's our family or it's a Sunday school class or a small group, whatever it might be. The consequences of that false teaching lead to shipwreck. And it's no small matter when we listen to uh, about whom we listen to or who we watch on TV. We should be discerning as to whom we allow to speak into our lives and the lives of our family. And uh, not just any TV or radio preacher will do, right? We shouldn't just allow just anybody into the local pulpit. Combating false teaching requires action by the flock. And so we must act when false teaching takes place within the local congregation. We should do so to protect God's people as well as out of a desire to see the errant person corrected because there's a love extended to those that are in error. 
because we were outside the faith until God did a great work in our heart and lives. And we want to see that happen in the lives of others. But we do protect God's people. And this should be done with love. We should, uh, we should see that this is the aim in Timothy's charge here, and it's this aim that ought to be in our lives as well. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I pray that as we think about this passage that we understand that God has called us to act when false teaching occurs in the, in the flock. And it's not a fun thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's an important thing. It's not something as trivial as getting a haircut. It makes shipwreck of people's faith. And so may God be glorified in what's taught in this pulpit. May God be glorified in what happens in our Sunday school classes. May He be glorified in what happens in small groups, in, in women's Bible studies, in men's Bible studies, in men's breakfasts. May those be places where God's Word is handled carefully and accurately and truthfully. And when it is not, may we as a church do the hard task of taking care of that. May we do so in love. So I just I call us to to think about this, um, to consider this, and to see this applied in our hearts and in our lives and the life of God's church here in, in Guymon. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we don't we don't like to address subjects like this because it's it's so hard. We 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 know our own faults, we know our own struggles. God, we know that we all have uh, erred in one, one way or another. And yet, God, you've called us to be careful with your word. You've entrusted men to proclaim your word truly and accurately. And so, Father, may we be careful in whom we allow to speak into our life and into the lives of others. Just as we might be discerning about uh, what person we'd get in the vehicle with or what person we'd want our kids to get in the vehicle with. Father, may we be careful about who we listen to as they teach your word, if they teach your word. So God, give us discernment. Give us wisdom. May we trust you. May we depend on you. May we seek you. And God, when, when errant issues come up in your church, may we address them. And may we do so with a love for the person who is in error. Father, may we do so uh, with the desire to see them brought back into right relationship and, and uh, fellowship with the church. And, and yet, Father, when people continue in false teaching, may we be willing to act as you've called us to, Father, to place them outside the church or to hand them over to Satan that they might learn the error of their way and that, God, you might bring them into your flock and your fold. And God, we trust you. We depend upon you. We love you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this truth. And, and God, may we be careful with it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.